Hello and welcome to Retirement Rebellion. My name is George Jurgen, and I'm hosting the fourth episode of six podcasts, which I'm doing once a month. Each podcast will focus on one book by authors who are pioneers in the world of thought and thinking. In this fourth episode, I delve into Dr. Brene Brown's Daring Greatly, how the courage to be vulnerable transforms the way we live, love, parent and lead. Dr. Brene Brown is a renowned research professor at the University of Houston, where she holds the Huffington Foundation Brene Brown Endowed Chair at the Graduate College of Social Work. Brown is also a visiting professor in management at the University of Texas at Austin, McCombs School of Business. She has spent two decades studying courage, vulnerability, shame and empathy and is the author of the books The Gifts of Imperfection, Daring Greatly, Rising Strong, Braving the Wilderness and Dare to Lead. In her book, Daring Greatly, Dr. Brene Brown argues that vulnerability is in fact a strength. And when we shut ourselves off from revealing our true selves, we grow distanced from the things that bring purpose and meaning to our lives. I cover four ideas from Dr. Brown's book, Daring Greatly, and with reflection, apply her thinking to how that impacts on life after retirement, and in so doing, challenge not only preconceived ideas, but also elicit new possibilities for life beyond retirement. Introduction. Daring Greatly is from Theodore Roosevelt's speech, Citizenship in a Republic, sometimes referred to as The Man in the Arena, was delivered at the Sorbonne in Paris on April 23, 1910. Quote, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who sometimes comes short again and again. Because there is no effort without error or shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasm, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. Vulnerability is not knowing victory or defeat. It's understanding the necessity of both. It's engaging. It's being all in. Vulnerability is not weakness, and the uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure we face every day are not optional. 
Our only choice is a question of engagement. Rather than sitting on the sidelines and hurling judgment and advice, we must dare to show up and let ourselves be seen. This is vulnerability. This is daring greatly. Only after 12 years of dropping deeper and deeper into this work did Dr. Brene Brown finally understand the role it plays in our lives. Vulnerability is the core, the heart, the center of meaningful human experiences. This new information created a major dilemma for her personally. On the one hand, how can you talk about the importance of vulnerability in an honest and meaningful way without being vulnerable? On the other hand, how can you be vulnerable without sacrificing your legitimacy as a researcher? Her moment of daring greatly came in June 2010, when she was invited to speak at TEDx Houston. Today, it's one of the most viewed on TEDx, with more than 5 million hits and available in 38 languages. Sharing her research led her to write this book. Her corporate talks almost, almost always focus on leadership or creativity or innovation. The most significant problem they tell her stems from disengagement, lack of feedback and need for clarity of purpose. The first step of our journey is to understand where we are, what we're up against and where we need to go. Chapter one, scarcity. Looking inside our culture of never enough. Scarcity, the never enough problem. We get scarcity because we live it. One of Brene Brown's favorite writers on scarcity is global activist and fundraiser, Lynn Twist. In her book, The Soul of Money, she refers to scarcity as the great lie. She writes, and I quote, For many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. The next one is, I don't have enough time. Whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we can even question or examine it. The internal condition of scarcity lies at the very heart of our jealousies, our greed, our prejudice, and our arguments with life. Unquote. The word scarce comes from the old Norman French word scars, meaning restricted to quantity. Nostalgia is also a dangerous form of comparison. Think about how often we compare ourselves and our lives to a memory that nostalgia has so completely edited that it never really existed. Just think of phrases such as, remember when? Or those were the days? The source of scarcity. Over the past decade, Professor Brown writes that she witnessed major shifts in the zeitgeist of the United States. 
She's seen it in the data and honestly on the faces of the people she has met. The world has never been an easy place, but the past decade has been traumatic for so many people that it's made changes to our culture. From 9-11, multiple wars and the recession to catastrophic natural disasters and the increase in random violence and school shootings. We've survived and are surviving events that have torn our sense of safety with such force that we've experienced them as trauma, even if we weren't involved. And when it comes to the staggering numbers of those now unemployed and underemployed, I think that every single person has been directly affected or is close to someone who has. Worrying about scarcity is our culture's version of post-traumatic stress. And they all share the same formula of shame, comparison and disengagement. One way to think about these three components of scarcity and how they influence our culture and here I would add our culture of retirement, is to reflect on the following three questions. First, shame. Is fear of ridicule, belittling or judgment that you're no longer working making you feel ashamed? Second, comparison. Is there overt or covert comparison, comparing or ranking among your friends. Third, disengagement. Are you afraid to try out new things, new work, or even new friendships? The counter approach to living in scarcity is not about abundance. In fact, abundance and scarcity are two sides of the same coin. The opposite of never enough isn't abundance or more than you could ever imagine. The opposite of scarcity is enough or what Dr. Brown likes to call wholeheartedness. Let's go back to the three set of questions about scarcity and ask yourself if you'd be willing to be vulnerable and dare greatly. We all want to be brave. We want to dare greatly. We're tired of being afraid. So in the next chapter, we look at debunking the vulnerability myths. Chapter two, debunking the vulnerability myths. Yes, we're totally exposed when we're vulnerable and yes, we're taking a huge emotional risk when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable. Myth number one, vulnerability is weakness. This is the most widely accepted myth. We spend our lives pushing away and protecting ourselves from feeling vulnerable or being perceived as too emotional and feel contempt when others are less capable or willing to mask feelings, suck it up or soldier on, rather than respecting and appreciating the courage and daring behind vulnerability. We let our fear and discomfort become judgment and criticism. 
Vulnerability isn't good or bad. It's not what we call a dark emotion. Nor is it always a light, positive experience. Vulnerability is the core of all emotions and feelings. To feel is to be vulnerable. To believe vulnerability is weakness is to believe that feeling is weakness. To foreclose on our emotional life out of fear that the costs will be too high is to walk away from the very thing that gives purpose and meaning to our lives. What most of us don't understand, and it took Professor Brené Brown a decade of research to learn, is that vulnerability is also the cradle of emotions and experiences we crave. It is the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy and creativity. It is the source of hope, empathy, accountability and authenticity. If we want greater clarity in our purpose or deeper and more meaningful spiritual lives, vulnerability is the path. Professor Brown defines vulnerability as uncertainty, risk and emotional exposure. With that definition in mind, let's think about love. Waking up every day and loving someone who may or may not love us back, whose safety we can't ensure, who may stay in our lives or may leave without a moment's notice, who may be loyal to the day they die or betray us tomorrow. That's vulnerability. To put our art, our writing, our photography, our ideas out into the world with no assurance of acceptance or appreciation, that's also vulnerability. Here are examples people shared when she asked them to finish this sentence. Vulnerability is sharing an unpopular opinion, standing up for myself, asking for help, saying no, starting my own business, initiating sex with my wife or husband, calling a friend whose child has just died, the first date after my divorce, getting fired, falling in love, getting pregnant after three miscarriages, laying off employees, asking for forgiveness, having faith. Do these sound like weaknesses? No. Vulnerability sounds like truth and feels like courage. Truth and courage aren't always comfortable, but they're never weakness. When asked the question, how does vulnerability feel? The answers were equally powerful. Consider how many of them apply to you. It's taking the mask off and hoping the real me isn't too disappointing. Not sucking it anymore. It's where courage and fear meet. Sweaty palms and a racing heart. Going out on a limb. It feels awkward and scary. Being all in. Panic, anxiety, fear and hysteria, followed by freedom, pride and amazement. Then a little more panic. Bearing your belly in the face of the enemy. 
I know it's happening when I feel the need to strike first before I'm struck. It feels like free falling. The answer that appeared over and over again was naked. According to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, the word vulnerability is derived from the Latin verb vulnerare, meaning wound. The definition includes capable of being wounded and open to attack or damage. Merriam-Webster defines weakness as the inability to withstand attack or wounding. In other words, weakness stems from lack of vulnerability. From the field of social psychology, influence and persuasion researchers explain it as follows, quote, Far from being an effective shield, the illusion of invulnerability undermines the very response that would have supplied genuine protection. Simply seeing people as people rather than the audience reminded her the challenges that scared her, like being naked, and scares everyone else. She thinks that's why empathy can be conveyed without speaking a word. It just takes looking into someone's eyes and seeing oneself reflected back in an engaged way. We love seeing truth and openness in other people, but we're afraid to let them see it in us. There's the crux. Quote, I want to experience your vulnerability, but I don't want to be vulnerable. Unquote. Myth number two, I don't do vulnerability. Dr. Brown writes that she heard people say, interesting topic, but I don't do vulnerability. Another quote, I'm an engineer, we hate vulnerability. Or, I'm a lawyer, we eat vulnerability for breakfast. Or, guys don't do vulnerability. Unfortunately, there is no get out of vulnerability free card. Life is vulnerable. It's extremely helpful to ask ourselves or those close to us the following questions. And I would add here, especially for those of us who are retiring or retired. One, what do I do when I feel emotionally exposed? Two, how do I behave when I'm feeling very uncomfortable and uncertain? Three, how willing am I to take emotional risks? When we pretend that we can avoid vulnerability, we engage in behaviours that are often inconsistent with who we want to be. Experiencing vulnerability isn't a choice. The only choice we have is how we are going to respond when we are confronted with uncertainty, risk and emotional exposure. If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Myth number three. Vulnerability is letting it all hang out. Vulnerability is based on mutuality and requires boundaries and trust. 
It's not oversharing. It's not purging. It's not indiscriminate disclosure. And it's not celebrity-style social media information dumps. Vulnerability is about sharing our feelings and experiences with people who have earned the right to hear them. Vulnerability without boundaries leads to disconnection, distrust and disengagement. We need to feel trust to be vulnerable and we need to be vulnerable in order to trust. In his book, The Science of Trust, Emotional Attunement for Couples, author John Gotten writes, and I quote, Trust is built in very small moments, which I call sliding door moments after the movie Sliding Doors. For example, as I passed the mirror, I saw my wife's face in the reflection and she looked sad, brushing her hair. There was a sliding door moment. I had a choice. I could sneak out of the bathroom and think, I don't want to deal with her sadness tonight. I want to read my novel. But instead, because I'm a sensitive researcher of relationships, I decided to go into the bathroom. I took the brush from her hair and asked, what's the matter, baby? And she told me why she was sad. Now, at that moment, I was building trust. I was there for her. If you're always choosing to turn away, then trust erodes in a relationship very slowly. Unquote. Professor Brown writes, What's the worst betrayal of trust you can think of? He sleeps with my best friend. She lies about where the money went. He or she chooses someone over me. Yes, all are terrible betrayals, definitely. But there is a particular betrayal that is more insidious and equally corrosive to trust. It's the betrayal of disengagement, of not caring, of letting the connection go. Disengagement triggers shame and our greatest fears, the fears of being abandoned, unworthy and unlovable. Trust is a product of vulnerability that grows over time and requires work, attention and full engagement. Trust is not a grand gesture. Myth number four, we can go it alone. Going it alone is a value we hold in great esteem in our culture. In reality, walking alone can feel miserable and depressing, but we admire the strength it conveys. The vulnerability journey is not the kind of journey we can make alone. We need support. We need folks who will let us try on new ways of being without judging us. We need a hand to pull us up off the ground when we get kicked down. Going back to Roosevelt's man in the arena speech, Professor Brown learned that the people who love her, the people she really depends on, were never the critics who were pointing at her when she stumbled. They weren't in the bleachers at all. They were with her in the arena, fighting for her 
and with her. Chapter 3. Understanding and Combating Shame Shame derives its power from being unspeakable. That's why it loves perfectionists. It's easy to keep us quiet. Shame hates having words wrapped around it. If we speak shame, it begins to wither. Sharing something you've created is vulnerable, but essential part of of engaged and wholehearted living. It is the epitome of daring greatly. We knowingly or unknowingly attach our self-worth to how our product or art is received. In simple terms, if they love it, we're worthy. If they don't, we're worthless. One of two things happens in the process. One, once you realise that your self-worth is hitched to what you've produced or created, it's unlikely that you'll share it. Second, if you do share it in its most creative form and the reception doesn't meet your expectations, you are crushed. You shut down. Shame tells you that you shouldn't have even tried. If you're wondering what happens if you attach your self-worth to your art or product and people love it, Professor Brown offers her answer from a personal and professional experience. You're in even deeper trouble. You've handed over your self-worth to what other people think. You're officially a prisoner of, quote, pleasing, performing and perfecting, unquote. What is shame and why is it so hard to talk about it? The one, two, threes of shame are, one, we all have it, except for sociopaths. Two, we're all afraid to talk about shame. And three, the less we talk about shame, the more control it has over our lives. Shame is primarily the fear of disconnection. We are psychologically, emotionally, cognitively and spiritually hardwired for connection, love and belonging. Connection, along with love and belonging, is why we are here and it gives us purpose and meaning. Shame is the fear of disconnection. It is the fear that we are unworthy or not good enough for love, belonging or connection. The definition of shame has emerged from Dr. Brown's research as, and I quote, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging, unquote. Twelve categories of shame emerge from Professor Brown's research. Appearance and body image. Money and work. Motherhood and fatherhood. Family. Parenting. Mental and physical health. Addiction. Sex. Aging. Religion. Surviving trauma. Being stereotyped or labelled. Example of shame are 
getting laid off, being asked when you're due, when you're not pregnant, hiding the fact that you're in recovery, raging at your kids, bankruptcy, not making partner in your firm, infertility, partner leaving you for a neighbour, internet porn. Untangling shame, guilt, humiliation and embarrassment. One of the simpler reasons that shame is so difficult to talk about is vocabulary. We often use the terms embarrassment, guilt, humiliation and shame interchangeably. It's not being overly picky, it's much more than semantics. The difference between shame and guilt is best understood as the difference between I am bad and I did something bad. So guilt is I did something bad and shame is I am bad. Guilt is just as powerful as shame, but its influence is positive while shame's is destructive. Shame is a good tool for keeping people in line it's, and it's highly correlated with violence, aggression, depressions, eating disorders and bullying. Humiliation is another word we often confuse with shame. People believe they deserve their shame. They do not believe they deserve their humiliation. Embarrassment is the least serious of the four emotions. It's fleeting and it can eventually be funny. When we do something embarrassing, we don't feel alone. We know that others have done it and it will pass rather than define us. We know that shame is bad. So what do we do about it? The answer is shame resilience. Not that shame resilience is not possible, in all her studies, Professor Brown found that men and women with high level of shame resilience have four things in common. Shame resilience is about moving from shame to empathy, the real antidote to shame. A social wound needs a social balm, and empathy is that balm. To get empathy, we have first to know what we're dealing with. Here are the four elements of shame resilience. One, recognize shame and understanding its triggers. Shame is biology and biography. Feel your way through it and figure out what messages and expectations triggered it. Second, practicing critical awareness are these messages and expectations realistic or attainable? Are they what you want or what you think others want? Third, reaching out. Are you owning and sharing your story? Four, speaking shame. Are you talking about how you feel and asking for what you need when you feel shame? In his book, Incognito, neuroscientist David Eagleman describes the brain as, quote, a team of rivals. There is an ongoing conversation among different factions in your brain 
each competing to control the single output channel of your behavior. Eagleman lays out two dominant party system of reason and emotion. The rational system is the one that cares about analysis of things in the outside world, while the emotional system monitors the internal state and worries whether things are good or bad. Eagleman points out that emotions can tip the balance of decision-making, especially true when the emotion is shame. The pain of shame is enough to trigger that survival part of our brain that runs, hides, or comes out swinging. Own your story. If you own it, you get to write the ending. In his book, Writing to Heal, Professor James Pennebaker writes, and I quote, Since the mid-1980s, an increasing number of studies have focused on the value of expressive writing as a way to bring about healing. The evidence is mounting that the act of writing about traumatic experiences for as little as 15 or 20 minutes a day for three or four days can produce measurable changes in physical and mental health. Unquote. Women and the shame web. Women sharing their definition of shame say the following. Look perfect, do perfect, be perfect. Being judged by our mothers. Being exposed. Where I come from will always keep me feeling I'm not good enough. Never enough at home, never enough at work, never enough in bed. No seat at the cool table. Women are constantly asked why they haven't married, or if they are married, why they haven't had children. Mother shame is ubiquitous. It's a birthright for girls and women. But the real struggle for women is to be perfect. I keep envisioning a web, a sticky, complex spider web of layered, conflicting and competing expectations that dictate who we should be, what we should be, how we should be. In, if you take competing and conflicting expectations, often unattainable, you have the following. Be perfect, but don't make a fuss. Don't upset anyone, but speak your mind. Dial the sexuality up after the kids are down, but dial it down at meetings. Just be yourself, but not if you're shy. In a US study on conformity to feminine norms, the most important attributes associated with being feminine were being nice, pursuing a thin body ideal, modesty, being domestic, caring for children, keeping sexual intimacy contained within one committed relationship. Mean-spirited criticism has been thrown at Professor Brown, and she shares them with us. Quote, How can she talk about worthiness when she clearly needs to lose 15 pounds? Less research, more Botox. She may believe that she's enough, but by the look of that chest, she could use some more. If I looked like Brene Brown, I'd embrace imperfection too. 
They didn't go after her intellect or her arguments. That wouldn't hurt enough. Now, let's look at how men experience shame. When she asked men to define shame, this is what she heard. Shame is failure at work, on the football field, in your marriage, in bed, with money, with your children. It doesn't matter. Shame is failure. Shame is being wrong, not doing wrong, but being wrong. Shame is a sense of being defective. Shame happens when you think you're soft. It's degrading and shaming to be seen as anything but tough. Revealing any weakness is shaming. Basically, shame is weakness. Showing fear is shameful. You can't show fear. You can't be afraid no matter what. Shame is being seen as the guy you can shove up against the lockers. Our worst fear is being criticized or ridiculed. Either one is extremely shaming. Whenever her graduate students were going to do interviews with her, she told them it's important to be honest about what emerged. It didn't matter if the man was 18 or 80. If she asked what the shame message was, the answer was invariably, quote, don't be a pussy, unquote. Like demands on women to be naturally beautiful, thin and perfect at everything, especially motherhood, the box has rules that tell men what they should and shouldn't do and who they're allowed to be. But for men, every rule comes back to the same mandate. Don't be weak. Pay attention to that man behind the curtain. Just as with women, men are caught in a double bind. Over the past couple of years, especially since the economic downturn, what she started to see is the box from The Wizard of Oz. She's talking about the small curtain-concealed box that the wizard stands in as he's controlling his mechanical, great and powerful Oz image. The image came to mind when she interviewed a man who was in deep shame about getting downsized. He told her, it's funny, my father knows, my two closest friends know, it's been six months and every morning I still get dressed and leave the house like I'm going to work. I drive across town, sit in coffee shops and look for a job. Professor Brown is a skilled interviewer, but she imagined that the look on her face conveyed something like, how on earth did you pull that off? Without waiting for her next questions, he answered. She doesn't want to know. If she already knows, she wants me to keep pretending. Trust me, if I find another job and tell her after I'm back at work, she'd be grateful. Knowing would change the way she feels about me. She didn't sign up for this. Professor Brown was not prepared to hear over and over from men how the women Mothers, sisters, girlfriends, wives in their lives are constantly criticizing them for not being open and vulnerable and intimate. All the while, they're standing in front of the cramped wizard closet 
where the men are huddled inside, adjusting the curtain and making sure no one sees in and no one gets out. There was a moment when she was driving home from an interview with a small group of men and thought, quote, holy shit, I am the patriarchy, unquote. Here's the painful pattern that emerged from her research with men. Women ask men to be vulnerable. They beg their men to let them in and they plead with their men to tell them when they're afraid. But the truth is that most women can't stomach it. In these moments when real vulnerability happens in men, most women recoil with fear and that fear manifests as everything from disappointment to disgust. And the men are very smart. They know the risks and they can see the look in their women's eyes when they're thinking, come on, pull it together, man up. Men know what women want. Men want women to pretend to be vulnerable and women get really good at pretending. Pissed off or shut down. Professor Brown writes that she doesn't want to be to oversimplify something as complex as the response to shame. But when it comes to men, there seem to be two primary responses, pissed off or shut down. Of course, like women, as men develop shame resilience, this changes and men learn to respond to shame with awareness, self-compassion and empathy. She scheduled interviews with several male therapists who specialize in men's issues. One therapist told her this story to illustrate his point about the concept of pissed off or shut down. When he was a freshman in high school, he tried out and made the football team. On his first day of practice, his coach told the boys to line up on the line of scrimmage. He said, I was suddenly afraid. I was thinking about how much it was going to hurt and I guess the fear showed up on my face. He said his coach yelled his last name and said, don't be a pussy, get on the line. He said he immediately felt shame coursing through his body. In that single moment, Professor Brown became very clear about how the world works and what it means to be a man. One, I'm not allowed to be afraid. Two, I'm not allowed to show fear. And three, I'm not allowed to be vulnerable. Shame is being afraid, showing fear or being vulnerable. When she asked him what he did next, he looked her in the eye and said, I turned my fear into rage and steamrolled over the guy in front of me. It worked so well that I spent the next 20 years turning my fear and vulnerability into rage and steamrolling anyone who came across me, my wife, my children, my employees. There was no other way out from underneath the fear and shame. It's almost as if shame, criticism and ridicule are physically intolerable. When it started costing me my marriage and relationships with my children, I got into therapy. That's why I do the work I do today, unquote. Professor Brown sat down with another therapist who had spent more than 25 years working with her. 
He explained that from the time boys are 8 to 10 years old, they learn that initiating sex is their responsibility and that sexual rejection soon becomes the hallmark of masculine shame. He explained, quote, Even in my own life, when my wife isn't interested, I still have to battle feelings of shame. It doesn't matter why she's not in the mood. I'm vulnerable and it's difficult. Unquote. When she asked him about his work around addiction and pornography, he gave her an answer that helped her understand the issue in an entirely new light. He said, for five bucks and five minutes, you think you're getting what you need and you don't have to risk rejection. Unquote. After interviewing women for a decade, it was clear that women see the issue of men and pornography as having to do with their own inadequate appearance or their lack of sexual experience. At the end of an interview with this wise and wonderful man, he said, I guess the secret is that sex is terrifying for most men. That's why you see everything from porn to violent attempts to exercise power and control. Rejection is deeply painful, unquote. Cultivating intimacy, physical or emotional, is almost impossible when our shame triggers meet head on and create a perfect shame storm. There is no intimacy without vulnerability. Yet another example of vulnerability as courage. The words we can never take back. Women who feel shame when they don't feel heard or validated often resort to pushing and provoking with criticism. Men in turn who feel shame when they're criticized for being inadequate either shut down or come back with anger. We can apologize for shaming someone we love, but the truth is that those shaming comments leave marks. And shaming someone we love around vulnerability is the most serious of all security breaches. Even if we apologize, we've done serious damage because we've demonstrated our willingness to use sacred information as a weapon. In The Gifts of Imperfection, Dr. Brown shares the definition of love based on her data. Quote, we cultivate love when we allow our most vulnerable and powerful selves to be deeply seen and known, and when we honour the spiritual connection that grows from that offering with trust, respect, kindness and affection. Love is not something we give or get. It is something we nurture and grow. We can only love others as much as we love ourselves. Shame, blame, disrespect, betrayal and the withholding of affection damage the roots of which love grows. Love can only survive these injuries if they are acknowledged, healed and rare. Personally, she has fought the data with everything she had. Over and over she heard the idea of self-love as a prerequisite to loving others and she hated it. Sometimes, she writes, it's so much easier to love your husband and kids than it is to love yourself. But in practicing self-love over the past couple of years, 
she declares that it has immeasurably deepened her relationships with the people she loves. It's not the lack of professing it that gets us into trouble in our relationships. It's failing to practice love that leads us to hurt. Becoming real. If women want to play by the rules, they need to be sweet, thin and pretty, stay quiet and perfect mums and wives and own their own power. One moves outside of these expectations and bam, the shame web closes in. Men, on the other hand, need to stop feeling, start earning, put everyone in their place and climb their way to the top or die trying. Push open the lid of your box to grab a breath of air or slide the curtain back a bit to see what's going on and bam, shame cuts you down to size. Remembering that shame is the fear of disconnection, the fear that we're unlovable and we don't belong, makes it easy to see why so many people in midlife overfocus on their children's lives, work 60 hours a day, or turn to affairs, addiction and disengagement. We start to unravel. The greatest lesson is this. If we're going to find our way out of shame and back to each other, vulnerability is the path and courage is the light. Chapter four, the vulnerability armory. As children, we found ways to protect ourselves from vulnerability, from being hurt, diminished and disappointed. We put on armor. We used our thoughts, emotions and behaviors as weapons. Now, as adults, we realize that to live with courage, purpose and connection, to be the person we long to be, we must again be vulnerable. We must take off the armor, put down the weapons, show up and let ourselves be seen. The word persona is the Greek term for a stage mask. Masks and armor are perfect metaphors for how we protect ourselves from the discomfort of vulnerability. Masks make us feel safe even when they become suffocating. Armor makes us feel stronger even when we grow weary from dragging the extra weight around. The irony is that when we're standing across from someone who is hiding or shielded by masks and armor, we feel frustrated and disconnected. That's the problem here. Vulnerability is the last thing I want to see. I want to see in me, but the first thing I look for in you. Armor can be hard to see on adults. Once we've worn it long enough, it molds to our shape and is ultimately undetectable. It's like second skin. Interviews with hundreds of participants convey the same fear. Quote, I can take the mask off. I can't take the mask off now. No one knows what I really look like. Not my partner, not my kids, not my friends. They've never met the real me. I'm not sure who I am under here, unquote. 
Pre-teens and teens, though, are much different. At this tender age, the armour is still awkward and ill-fitting. Kids are clumsy in their efforts to hide fear and self-doubt, which makes it easier for observers to see exactly what armour they are using. Whether we're 14 or 54, our armour and our masks are as individualised and unique as the personal vulnerability, discomfort and pain we're trying to minimise. Our armour may be custom-made, but certain parts of it are interchangeable. A peek inside the armoury will help us to look inside ourselves. The Enough Mandate In The Gifts of Imperfection, in Chapter 1, Professor Brown talks about enough is the opposite of scarcity. And the properties of scarcity are shame, comparison and disengagement. Well, it appears that believing that we're enough is the way out of the armour. It gives us permission to take off the mask. This lays at the core of every strategy illuminated by research participants for freeing themselves from their armour. And this is particularly important for people who are about to retire or have just retired. I am enough. I have had enough. Showing up, taking risks and letting myself be seen is enough. Professor Brown has practiced with the following strategies on her own, and she knows that they are lifesavers. Three forms of shielding form part of the common vulnerability arsenal. Shield number one, for foreboding joy. Shield number two, perfectionism. Shield number three, numbing. Let's start with shield number one, foreboding joy. Joy is, the, is probably the most difficult emotion to feel. Why? Because when we lose the ability or willingness to be vulnerable, joy becomes something we approach with deep foreboding. This shift from our younger self's greeting of joy with an alloyed delight happens slowly and outside our awareness. We don't even know that it's happening or why. We just know that we crave more joy in our lives, that we're joy starved. In a culture of deep scarcity, of never feeling safe, certain or sure enough, joy can feel like a setup. We wake up in the morning and feel work is going well, everyone in the family's healthy, the house is still standing. Oh shit, this is bad. This is really bad. Disaster must be lurking right round the corner. Or we get promoted and our first thought is too good to be true. What's the catch? We're always waiting for the other shoe to drop off. When Dr. Brown asked participants about the experience that left them feeling most vulnerable, she did not expect joy to be one of the answers. She was shocked to hear people say that they were at their most vulnerable when standing over my children while they're asleep 
acknowledging how much I love my wife or husband, loving my job, getting engaged, going into remission, falling in love. One of the first stories she heard was from a woman in her late 40s. Quote, I used to take every good thing and imagine the worst possible disaster. I would literally picture the worst case scenario and try to control control all the outcomes, unquote. <clears throat> a man in his early 60s told her, quote, I used to think that the best way to get through life was to expect the worst. That way, if it happened, you, you were prepared. And if it didn't happen, you were pleasantly surprised. Then I was in a car accident and my wife was killed. Needless to say, expecting the worst did not prepare me at all. And worse, I still grieve for all those wonderful moments we shared and that I did not fully enjoy. My commitment to her is to fully enjoy every moment now. I just wish she was here. Unquote. When we spend our lives knowingly or unknowingly pushing away vulnerability, we can't hold space open for the uncertainty, risk and emotional exposure of joy. For many of us, there's even a psychological response, a coming out of our skin feeling. The antidote is to practice gratitude. The shudder of vulnerability that accompanies joy is an invitation to practice gratitude, to acknowledge how grateful we are for the person, the beauty, the connection. Gratitude emerged from the data as the antidote to foreboding joy. Participants described happiness as an emotion that's connected to circumstances, and they described joy as a spiritual way of engaging with the world that's connected, that's connected to practicing gratitude. Participants spoke of tangible gratitude practices more than merely having an attitude of gratitude or feeling grateful. Nothing has been a greater gift to her than the three lessons she learned about joy and light from people who spent time in sorrow and darkness. A. Joy comes to us in moments, ordinary moments. We risk missing out on joy when we get too busy chasing down the extraordinary. B. Be grateful for what you have and don't take it for granted. Don't apologize. Celebrate it. C. Don't squander joy. Turn every opportunity to feel joy. Lean into it and give in to these moments. Create picture memories so you can recall them. Shield number two. Perfectionism. Perfectionism is not the path that leads us to our gifts and to our sense of purpose. It's the hazard detour. Professor Brown thinks it's helpful to start by looking at what perfectionism is not. Perfectionism is not the same thing as striving for excellence. 
It's a defensive move. It's a 20-ton shield that we lug around. Perfectionism is not self-improvement. At its core, perfectionism is about trying to earn approval. Perfectionism is not the key to success. In fact, research shows perfectionism hampers achievement. Lastly, perfectionism is not the way to avoid shame. Perfectionism is a form of shame. After using data to bushwhack her way through the myths, Professor Brown developed the following definitions of perfectionism. Perfectionism is a self-destructive and addictive belief system. Perfectionism is self-destructive simply because it does not exist. It's an unattainable goal. Perfectionism is addictive. Perfectionism actually sets us up to feel shame. So what's the antidote? The antidote is appreciating the beauty of cracks. If we want freedom from perfectionism, we have to make the long journey from what will people think to I am enough. That journey begins with shame resilience, self-compassion and owning our stories. We have to be willing to give ourselves a break and appreciate the beauty of our cracks or imperfections. Dr. Kristen Neff, a researcher and a professor at the University of Texas at Austin, writes in her book, Self-Comparison, Stop Beating Yourself Up and Leave Insecurity Behind, that there are three elements. First, self-kindness. Second, common humanity. Third, mindfulness. First, self-kindness. Being warm and understanding toward ourselves when in fact we fail or feel inadequate, instead of flagellating ourselves with self-criticism. Second, common humanity. Recognize that feelings of personal inadequacy are part of the shared human experience. And third, mindfulness. We cannot ignore our pain and feel compassion at the same time. Mindfulness requires that we don't over-identify with thoughts and feelings, so we're not swept away. Gretchen Rubin, author of The Happiness Project, explains how to manage perfectionism. Quote, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I believe that was a quote from Voltaire. For example, a 20-minute walk that I do is better than the four-mile run that I don't do. Photographer Andreas Scher, an award-winning blogger, writes here about perfectionism. Quote, As a kid, I equated perfect with being loved, and I think I still confuse the two. Unquote. To manage her perfectionism, Professor Brown gives herself permission to do things that are good enough. Quick and dirty wins the race. Nicholas Wilton is the artist behind the beautiful illustrations on her earlier book covers and her website. 
Here's what he has to say about perfectionism. Quote, Perfectionism is crucial in building an aircraft, a bridge, or a high-speed train. Things are either perfectly right or they will not work. But after this, person got through organising everything just perfectly, he or she was left with a bunch of stuff that didn't fit anywhere. Things in a shoebox that had to go somewhere. Let's label the box art. Art, among all other tidy categories, most closely resembles what it is like to be human, to be alive. It is our nature to be imperfect, unquote. There's a quote Professor Brown shares every time she talks about vulnerability. It's from Leonard Cohen's song, Anthem, and the words are, There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Shield number three, numbing. First, one of the most universal numbing strategies is what she calls crazy busy. Second, statistics dictate that there are very few people who haven't been affected by addiction. She believes we all numb our feelings. Numbing vulnerability also dulls our experiences of joy, love, belonging, creativity and empathy. We can't selectively numb emotion. Numb the dark and you numb the light. We need to examine the idea of taking the edge off. And that means considering the glasses of wine we drink while we're cooking dinner. What are numbing and why? Americans today are more debt-ridden, obese, medicated and addicted than ever before. The primary driver of numbing would be our struggles with worthiness and shame, anxiety and disconnection. As she reviewed the data, disconnection and depression included loneliness, isolation, disengagement and emptiness. Aren't these words for the retired folks? We may have a couple of hundred friends on Facebook, but we feel alone and unseen. We are hardwired for connection and disconnection always creates pain. What's the antidote? <clears throat> the antidote is setting boundaries, finding true comfort and cultivating spirit. Research participants consistently talked about one, learning how to actually feel the feelings. Two, staying mindful about numbing behaviours. And three, learning how to lean into the discomfort of hard emotions. If we want to fully experience love and belonging, we must believe that we're worthy of love and belonging. Here are definitions of the word connection and the word belonging. Connection is the energy that is created between people when they feel seen, heard and valued, when they can give and receive without judgment. Belonging is the innate human desire to be part of something larger than us, because this yearning is so primal 
We often try to acquire it by fitting in and by seeking approval, which are not only hollow substitutes for belonging, but often barriers to it. Because true belonging only happens when we present our authentic, imperfect selves to the world. Our sense of belonging can never be greater than our level of self-acceptance. Conclusion. If you decide to walk into the arena and dare greatly, you're going to get kicked around. You're going to be on the receiving end of some cynicism and cruelty before it's over. Why? Because cynicism, criticism and cruelty are even better than armour. They can be fastened into weapons that not only keep vulnerability at a distance, but also inflict injury on the people who are being vulnerable and making us uncomfortable. When Professor Brown speaks of criticisms, she's talking about put-downs, personal attacks and unsubstantiated claims about our motivations and intentions. When she talks about cynicism, she's not talking about healthy scepticism. She's talking about reflexive cynicism like, what a loser idea, or totally lame, or who gives the shit? So what's the antidote? The antidote is daring greatly. When we stop caring about what people think, we lose our capacity for connection. When we become defined but by what people think, we lose our will- willingness to be vulnerable. If we dismiss all the criticism, we lose out on important feedback. But if we subject ourselves to the hatefulness, our spirits get crushed. It's a tightrope. Shame resilience is the balance bar. And the safety net below is the one or two people in our lives who can help us reality check the criticism and cynicism. In addition to walking the tightrope, practicing shame resilience and cultivating a safety net community that support me, I've implemented two additional strategies for my tribe of retiring baby boomers. One, I only accept and pay attention to feedback from people who are also in the arena. Second, I carry a small sheet of paper in my wallet that has written on it the names of people whose opinions matter to me. To be on my list, you have to be a stretch mark friend. That is, our connection has been stretched and pulled so much that it's become part of who we are. In the immortal words of Scott Stratton, author of Unmarketing, don't try to win over the haters. You're not the jackass whisperer. I have two pieces of advice to retiring baby boomers, and they are the following. One, the first is that shame is insidious and works in the dark recesses of our mind. In the words of Professor Brown, Shame works like termites in a house. It's hidden in the dark, behind the walls, and constantly eating away at our infrastructure, at our self-esteem, 
until one day the stairs suddenly crumble. Only then do we realise that it's only a matter of time before the walls come tumbling down. Think about this in your retirement. What are you doing? What is your purpose? Don't let the termites in. Second, stop trying to fit in. It's time to belong. Fitting in is being somewhere where you really want to be, but the others don't care one way or another. Whereas belonging is being somewhere where you want to be. To fit in, I have to be like you. If I belong, I get to be me. So belong to the retirement rebellion and get to be you.